Well, welcome and thank you for listening to the teaching of Ethan Callison. Today's message is entitled, Awareness Revealed. We'll be taking a look into Romans chapter 7, verse 13 through chapter 8, verse 1. This message is part of a series entitled, Romans Revealed here at Fellowship Community Church. If this message makes an impact in your life, please feel free to rate and review this podcast on whatever platform of your choosing and share with your friends and family on social media. Well, there's, uh, there's almost nothing as powerful and uh, as just incredibly uplifting as worshiping collectively as a body, uh, being able to sing praise and declaration of who God is, uh, testifying of his goodness in our life and what he has done, what he is going to do, and what he's going to continue to do. Uh, church is just incredible. I love worshiping with you each and every week, week in and week out, gathering together as bodies of believers coming together and uh, administering to one another and testifying of who Jesus is and what he's done in our lives. Uh, my name is Ethan Callison. I serve as uh, our campus pastor at Fellowship Community Church North Campus and uh, love and honor to open up God's word and reveal uh, the spirit to do a work in your life this morning. Uh, we're in our series, Romans Revealed, as we've been journeying through, looking at uh, different passages throughout the book of Romans, teaching it from, uh, from the pulpit Sunday mornings, as well as uh, throughout the week in your reading plan of reading uh, each passage uh, every week, journeying through that together. And then our midweek devotionals on Wednesday, which someone, a, a part of our body of believers, uh, opens up God's Word and teaches it and, and reveals in a short devotional on Facebook and Instagram uh, so that we can ca- stay connected throughout the week and not just uh, gathering together on Sunday mornings. Um, and this morning, I have the opportunity to open up Romans chapter 7 uh, this morning with you. And uh, one of the things I got to thinking about, I was teaching to our students a couple weeks ago uh, at Epic, and uh, I got to thinking about my four, a little over four years that I've been here at FCC, how many passages of Scripture that we as a body have memorized, have committed to memory. And, and I was just like, man, that, that was just so powerful. So I just began to think through and process and going over these scriptures. Um, and through our book of Romans, we're memorizing Romans chapter 12, verse 2 together. And so it's going to be up on the screen, and I want us to read it together. Uh, and then I'm going to take it off the screen. And if you don't have it memorized, it's okay. Uh, but then I want us to, to recite it together by memory. Uh, just powerful what, what we do when we allow the scriptures uh, to take a hold and take capture of us. So let's read Romans. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, together. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. I think you can get it without it on the screen. Here we go. You ready? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Powerful, powerful when we allow the scriptures to get inside of us. When I look at, from my point of view, uh, when I look at the world through what we call a biblical worldview, since mankind fell and Adam and Eve in the garden, from then on, mankind has always been focused and centered around self. Uh, wanting to know more about self, understand more about self, um, and we're really selfish individuals because that is a result uh, of the fall and centering to the world. And one of the ways in which we do this, which can be a good way and can be a positive way, is through a self-awareness test or having a self-IQ. Uh, you think of like Myers-Briggs test or DISC profile test or any of these tests that you take. Some of you even take like, uh, I've seen in the past Facebook tests that you take to see which character of your favorite movie, your personality lines with and, and all this. We love doing it. And uh, one of them that's kind of hit the, hit the road here recently, that's kind of exploded over the past year and a half, two years, has been what's called the Enneagram. The Enneagram stands, any stands for nine, gram stands for graft, and there's nine different personalities or nine types. Um, and about a year and a half, two years ago, this guy by the name of Ian Cron released this book, and he took this, this method of learning more about self and made it to where uh, uh, 
most everybody can understand it. This test is actually thousands of years old, uh, but no one really understood it a whole lot. And he kind of did a lot of research and, and brought it to the table. And so if you haven't taken your Enneagram, it's really cool to take it. Uh, this one's one of my favorite ones. It's the Enneagram Coach, uh, because it is through the lens of Scripture and, and it's gospel-centered. And so I've taken it twice now, and uh, I'm, a, I'm a type three uh, on the Enneagram, uh, which means I'm a, the achiever. That's my personality. And so I'm going to read a little bit about myself uh, to y'all this morning, being a little bit vulnerable. It says this, that type threes are optimistic, accomplished, and adaptable people who are able to achieve and excel and reach ambitious goals with apparent ease and confidence. It says their deep fear is being worthless, a failure, or incapable, and that causes them to struggle with deceit, hiding parts of themselves they don't want others to see, and only portraying a successful exterior. When trying to satisfy their longing for accomplishment and adoration apart from Christ, type threes can become excessively driven and image conscious by being competitive, self-promoting, and constantly comparing themselves to others. They run the risk of burnout and believing that they are only as good as their last accomplishment. However, when their heart is aligned with the gospel, they believe that they are loved and valued for who they really are, not just for their success and productivity. Their, their confidence, enthusiasm, and determination rubs off and inspires those around them. They become a humble team player and a champion of others, using their adaptability and drive for productivity and excellence. They allow for incredible achievements for the greater good. And uh, when we look at the sermon title for this week, is we've taken one word that defines the text or describes the text. This text is, is awareness revealed. Paul is revealing who he is. So if you want to take your copy of the scriptures, open up to Romans chapter 7. That's where we will be at today in verses 13 through chapter 8, verse 1. Um, and, but to understand the, the context of this passage, we have to read it through the lens of the previous text. So two weeks ago, Pastor Kevin taught from, a fee, or from, not a fee, from Romans chapter 5 and in, in, in verse 20. It says when he's looking at the old man and the Adam, it says in verse 20 that now the law came to increase the trespass but where sin increased, grace abound all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign throughout righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So when sin rises, or when you sin more, grace abounds ever more. Grace rises over that. And this could become a slippery slope to which, oh, I can just sin as much as I want, and grace is going to cover me. But Paul writes this in the next sentence in chapter 6. He says, but what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound by no means? And so here this morning, we're going to look at chapter 7, starting in verse 13, if you want to follow along with me. He writes this, Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin. And through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, 
but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be law that when I, when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so Paul, he's issuing this. There's this problem. There's this problem in the world and he's pointing out that sin has entered into the world and this problem is this. It's the problem of I. It's the problem of all. You see earlier in in the book of Romans, Paul, when he opens it up in in chapter one, verses 16 and 17, he testifies or he tells his testimony of what God had did in his life, saving him for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And then he says to the church in Rome, hey, Rome, I've heard of what God has been doing in that city and I long to be with you. And then he kind of recaps the whole Jewish faith and says that God created the world and, and he gave the Jewish race to, Jewish heritage to, to Abraham and it wasn't by Abraham's work or by his birthright, but by his faith. And then he says from there, we see that sin entered the world through Adam and Eve and, and he just recaps the whole gospel story. And then he says, but I'm gonna share with you right now what God has been doing and is doing in, in my life. And I'm gonna share. And so in this passage, these short 13 verses, there's over 31 uses of the word I. Paul is saying, not my pre-conversion, not before I came into relationship with Jesus, but right now as a follower of Jesus, this is what I struggle with. This is what I'm going with through. This is what I live in. And he wants to encourage and to, to reproof and to in, equip us in our relationship. When we look with the problem of I in verse 13, it says, did that which is good then bring death to me? And when he says, did that which is good, what he's talking about here is the law. He's saying the law is good. So did the law bring death to me? Or it can be better asked this way. How did something so holy, something so good, and something so righteous make me dead? And Paul's saying that the law actually doesn't kill me. What kills me is the sin that's within me, but the law reveals the, the sin nature that is within inside of me. It brings it to the surface. It brings it from darkness to light. And it says, the sin is in me and I am dying. I am of the flesh, the law just reveals the utter sinfulness of Paul and of us. So over these next 12 verses we're gonna look at, Paul's gonna talk about four problems that he has within himself and that I believe that we have within ourselves. And the first is this, Paul says, I am of the flesh. He says, I am in the flesh of verse 14. He starts, he says, the law is spiritual. What does that mean? It means this. The law was given to mankind from God. God inspired through Moses, written on a tablet with, his, with God's own finger, given to Moses to lead and to, to rule over the Israelites. Moses didn't just go up on a, on a mountain and say, Lord, I, uh, I'm gonna write these rules down and we're gonna obey by them and please help guide me. No, God directly gave the law. Therefore, the law is spiritual and not man-made. And then he goes on from then, he says, in the, from the, the law of spirit, he says, I am of the flesh sold under sin. He says, I have this flesh and it is dead, it is sinful, and I am sold under it. And then from verse 14 into verse 15, we're gonna see this tension. 
we're going to see this tension that Paul battles with and it's a tension that I battle with. And I believe if you're a follower of Jesus in here, you have felt, you have experienced and you have wrestled and probably are going to continue to wrestle with this tension in your life. I've had multiple people come up to me and say this, Ethan, I have sin that still dwells in me. I am still a sinning person, but, but I, I'm following after Jesus. Can I, still, can I be a Christian and still continue to, to have this sin nature? Yes, the, the flesh is of us, but we are not to live a lifestyle of sin. We're to be repenting of our sin, constantly turning our eyes, turning back to Jesus. But this, this tension here is this. Paul says in verse 15, he says, I do not do what I want to do. I so want to do this, but I just, I don't do it. I think of this, there's so many people that like, man, I really want to love that person and, and that person is just difficult to get along with, but I really want to love them, but I don't express my love towards them because they're difficult. Or we just spent six weeks through a series called Pursuing Peace and many of relationships were reconciled where forgiveness was issued and relationship with God and relationship with other. And it's like, man, I really want to forgive this person, but the pain that resides within me that I have from what they did to me, I'm having a really hard time forgiving them. I want to forgive them. I'm longing to forgive them, but, but I don't. I just can't seem, I do not do what I want to do. You know, I really want to be a cheerful person. I really want to be generous with my finances. But, but Spirit, when you kind of prompt me to do something that's outside of my, my comfort zone or to pushing the limits of my faith, I, I quench you or I grieve you and I don't do it because I know what's better for my finances than what you do. You see, our, our, our life, when we look at the Holy Spirit, is, is this of like a, our palm of a callus. When we feel the Spirit's nudging towards us and we're, we're sensitive to the Spirit, it's like a palm that doesn't have a callus and a needle pricks at it. It hurts. Or you can feel it. You know its presence. You obey it. You do it. When we're sensitive to the movement of the Holy Spirit, we obey the Spirit's promptings. But when we're callous to it, when we ignore it and we disobey, it builds up and it builds up to the point where we no longer hear the Spirit's voice speaking into us. I don't do that which I want to do. So that's one side of the tension. Then the other side, he says this, I do the very thing I hate. I hate it. I hate it, but I just, I just do it. There's often times in my life where I look like, oh my goodness, Ethan, I can't believe you've done that again. I can't believe you ventured on that. I can't believe you fell back into that. Something's wrong with you. Yep, something is wrong with me. It's called sin. I think we wrestle with this as followers of Jesus. I do the very thing I hate. One of them for me is overeating. It's like, oh, going back to the pantry, getting that bag of chips, getting that cliff bar. Do I need it? No. I do the very thing I hate. I want to lose weight. I want to be healthy. I want to keep my body as in well-being as because of the temple of the Holy Spirit. But I find myself going back to it again. Or maybe for you, it's this, you lose your temper. You have an anger issue. And it's like, man, I can't believe I done lost my anger again. Something's done made me mad. I raged and I had an outburst on my spouse or an outburst on my, on my kids. Man, I can't believe I did that again. I can't believe I yelled at them. I can't believe I lost my temper with them again. I told them I would never do that again, but yet I find myself here doing it once again. But you knew better, but you still did it. Paul says, I do the very thing I hate. There's, uh, I grew up listening to country western music and uh, one of my favorite artists is Waylon Jennings. Have any Waylon Jennings fans in the house? Oh yeah, love me some Waylon Jennings. Um, 
Waylon Jennings was writing a song. He rebelled against what was going on in the culture of country Western music. And he was writing this song to his wife. And he was saying, man, we've gotten so wrapped up in trying to just keep up with everyone that we've lost ourselves and lost our love for, for one another. And oftentimes we, we find ourselves uh, overspending and not being able to control ourselves. Um, so, so Waylon Jennings, in the, one of the songs, it's called Luchenbach, Texas. He, he wrote these lyrics and penned them to his wife. He said, we've been so busy keeping up with the Jones, a four-car garage, and we're still building on. And then he continues in that song, and he says, we've got to get back to the basics of love. And I would say what, what Waylon's ultimately saying is we've got to get to the basics of who we are, and the basics of who we are is our first love with our love with Jesus. Jesus revealed himself to John on the Isle of Patmos in Revelation chapter three, and he said to the church of Ephesus, Ephesus, get back to your first love. Come back to your first love. You love Jesus first. Come back to that first love. Something I talked about in my, my Enneagram is I have this comparison trap that I'll fall into. I compare myself, and, and, and I remember it was, it was a couple months ago, God just revealed himself to me in, in a pretty powerful way and just illuminated God's word, and the Spirit just like, like directly spoke to me, and I was, I was journeying through uh, the New Testament in a year and finishing it up in two years. Anyone ever done that? Yep, right there. And I was going through, through First and Second Timothy, and I was loving and cherishing these letters because of, here it is, Paul writing to Timothy, who is his spiritual son, who is his mentee, the one he's poured his life into, that he's discipled and, and developed. And he's writing this to, to Timothy, and he says this, Timothy, contentment with godliness is great gain. And I, and, I, and I thought, man, like God tells us to not be covetous people, to not envy others, and that's the negative aspect of it. But what he's saying is, I have so much more for you when you're comparing yourself to others or when you're longing for what others have, you're robbing yourself of the contentment that I have for you. You're robbing yourselves of the joy that I have for you. You're robbing yourselves of the peace that I want for you. You're robbing yourself of, of I dare say, the happiness that I long for you to have when you're comparing yourselves to others because I didn't create you to be them. I created you to be you. And I want you to have what I have made for you. Coveting and envy robs us of our contentment. I got, I got to thinking this, and some of us have been in states of contentment where it's like, man, if I could just live this single moment out for the rest of my life, I would, like, that's just perfectly fine with me. One of those moments for me was yesterday, uh, Katie went tubing on the, on the river with some of her friends, and uh, I had Genevieve at the house, and uh, we were reading books. She absolutely loves reading books, like over and over and over. She's a little bookworm, man. And uh, she's, she's just reading some books. We're reading books together, playing a little bit. And then I sat on the couch, and here come my little 15-month-old, and she came walking over and just put her hands on the couch and just smiled at me. So I picked her up, and I, and I put her on me. She crawled over, and she laid right on my chest and put her head against my chest and just laid there still as can be. And I was like, I could just live this moment out forever. I am so content right now. And about five minutes later, she got down and she started rumbling and she fell off the couch. I was like, yep, contentment going out the window. Here we go. Here we go. But when we look at this, Paul is saying, I don't do what I want to do and I do the very thing I hate. He actually summarized this entire principle up to a letter that he wrote to the church in Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5 verse 17. He says, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So Paul realized that the problem he had within himself is one that is he is of the flesh. We are of the flesh. I am of the flesh. 
Secondly is that I have nothing good dwelling in me. I have nothing good that dwells within me. Paul writes in verse 18, he says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is my flesh. I gotta think about this passage, it's like, well, who sets the standard of good? Because good oftentimes is a really objective statement. Like for instance, I love eating my steaks medium rare. Like that's good for me. My father, my whole family loves medium rare. My father-in-law, if it's not well done, he ain't eating it. Well, if you switched our steaks up, my steak is no longer good and his steak is no longer good. It's an objective thing. But here, when we look at what is good is set, the standard is set by God. He sets what is good because he is perfectly good. When I was an 11th grader, I took AP Virginia and U.S. History, which was a college-level course, and uh, I, I did pretty well in the class, uh, but the, my, my teacher and I, her name was Miss Bergman, we butted heads a lot, just had a lot of tension between the two of us, um, and I wound up getting a, a pretty good score on my test, so I got college credits for it. She still today believes that tests were swapped, and my name was put on the wrong test because I didn't really do that good in the, the class, but I remember my 12th grade year, um, we, had earned, we had learned to respect one another. I respected her and she respected me. And so we actually developed a pretty good relationships, even though we have completely different views on a lot of things. So I think our world kind of needs this day. And uh, so I walked into her class my 12th grade year and she was teaching Virginia and US history again. And I walked in and she knew I was a follower of Jesus. And she asked me this question. She said, hey, Ethan, I want you to answer to the class. Uh, do you think that one has to be a Christian to have morals? Think about that. Can you have morals and not be a follower of Jesus? And I don't remember, I don't know how I answered that question, probably not as well as I would today. But when we look at our government, when we first found it, the, the, the Bill of Rights, when we first found the Constitution, they were set on biblical or Judeo-Christian values, that God sets the standard. Now when we look at our government, man sets the standard. Well, who has the right to say what is good? Because my good is, might be different than your good. But Paul, when he says there's nothing good in me, isn't Paul's standard, isn't Timothy's standard, isn't anyone else in the church's standard, isn't Julius Caesar of Rome's standard. No, it's God's standard. God, you set the standard of good and therefore there's nothing good that dwells in me because I do not come to being good in your eyes. How often do we hear preach from the pulpit, watch on a little sermonette on Facebook of some famous preacher where he says, just do better. Just quit sinning, just push one, just keep moving. Just become a better version of yourself. No, that is heresy to the gospel. The gospel says, I'm a wretched sinner and I come before the Savior and I fall on my knees and I say, Lord, I am not good and I need you to cover me because you are good. I am not, but you are. Paul realized that there was nothing good that dwelled within him. The third, the third problem that Paul realized about himself he says, I want to do good, but I can't. I want to do good, but I can't. Verse 21, he says, so I find it to be a law. And oftentimes I'm going to teach you a little, a little hermeneutic Bible reading principle here. Oftentimes when you read the, the word law in scripture, it's speaking upon the Mosaic law, the law that God gave to Moses to lead the nation of Israel. But however, in this verse, and we'll see in here in a little bit, a lot of other times when the word law is given, it means like a principle or an agreement or a statement. So here he says, I find it to be a law, not the Mosaic law, but a principle. I find it to be a principle that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. I want to do it, but evil's lying close at hand. This comes back to the tension that Paul was feeling where I want to do 
I, I, what I do do, I don't want to do it, but I don't do what I want to do. This tension is, is battling amongst him. Uh, when I was an eighth grader, I was super smart, super brilliant, uh, and I decided to take a pencil and take the eraser side of a pencil and scratch the inside of my ear because my ear itched. I was brilliant, telling you. And uh, I have actually realized that uh, when I went to Nepal, they have this little feather on a chicken that has a really long stem and a little tiny feather at the end that they scratch the inside of the ears with. Well, I needed that at this time. And uh, so I took the pencil, stuck in my ear and began scratching my itch. Oh, it felt so good. Uh, And then I pulled it out and the eraser was no longer on the end of the pencil. It was on the inside of my ear. Eighth grader, not like a third grader, an eighth grader here. And so then I said, well, I got this problem, so I'm going to solve it myself. So I then took a pen, clicked the end of the pen out. I was like, I'm going to stab the eraser. I'm going to pull that bad boy out. So I stuck the pen in my ear and got as far as I could. Thought maybe I had it in the eraser. Pulled it out. No eraser. Only deafness in my right ear. Couldn't hear a thing. So I was like, oh, it'll be, it'll be okay. So I rode home that day and got to the house. I said, hey, mom, I got a, got a little issue. I have any eraser in the inside of my ear. I can't hear, but I think it'll be okay. Like, it might just fall out eventually. She's like, no, you said, we, we got to go get this looked at. So we went to urgent care and they took me in and I don't, all the looks they gave me, I don't know. It was probably like, dude, you're in eighth grade. Like you should know better than this by now. But so they took and they took a, a, a syringe and it was like massive, huge. And they sucked up this water and they said, what we're going to do is we're going to shoot water down inside your ear and the law of uh, uh, hydraulics will shoot the water and it'll push the eraser back out. And I'm like, okay, if you say so. So they put the, the syringe in my ear and they push this water down in there and all it does is smash that eraser up against my eardrum. And they try it over and over and over again. I'm like, come on, man, like I'm dying over here. They said, well, what we're going to do is we're going to use a suction cup now. We're going to see if we can like stick a thing down in here. We're going to see if we can suction cup the eraser out of your ear. They tried that and it didn't work. They said, we don't have anything else we know what to do. So we're going to send you to the ER. So I don't remember if it was my mom or dad, but they took me to the ER, rolled into the ER, you know, like 16 years later, I finally get a, a bed in the back. And they, uh, they take me under and they say, well, the, uh, we know urgent care tried that, but we just don't think they were doing it right. So we're going to try the same things they did again. I'm like, come on. So they took a syringe, water, didn't work, took a vacuum, didn't work. And I'm like in excruciating pain at this time. They said, well, Mr. Callison, you're squirming around too much. uh, We think you're in too much pain. So we're gonna take anesthesia and we're gonna knock you out and then we'll get it out for you. Like, we'll we'll get it out. It's like, cool, sounds good to me. Never been under anesthesia, this should be fun. And so they called it truth serum. And I'm like, all right, man, if you call it truth serum, I'm like, what I'm gonna be saying when I come out, I don't remember what I said, but it was probably hilarious. So they're like, count down from 10, got to nine, best sleep of my life. It was awesome. And I wake up and I remember I was staring up at the lights and the lights were like moving around like on the ceiling. And I was like, mom, I'm never doing drugs ever in my life because this is horrible. <clears throat> but I had the oxygen sensor on my finger. You know, they're, they're making sure I'm still alive and all that. And I remember clicking it on the railing of the bed. Uh, they didn't get the eraser out, by the way. And I remember clicking it on the bed and I looked over at the nurse and I said, would you like me to stop? And she said, yeah, that'd be nice. I said, okay. I'm trying, but I can't. Oftentimes, what Paul is saying here is, I want to do good, but I just can't. Evil is lying right at hand. Paul continues in verse 22 through 23. He says, I delight in the law of God. My spirit loves his law because it guides me, it directs me to light into the, the path at my feet not in his flesh, but in his spirit. 
Then he continues in 23 and he says, I see in my members, those are those who, that Paul absolutely loves, another law, not the mosaic, just a principle. This principle that's waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So many of us, we want to do what's right. We want to do good, but our flesh keeps failing us. Our flesh keeps falling. Sin continues to wreak havoc over our lives. So the first problem that Paul realizes, I am of the flesh. Second is I have nothing good dwelling in me. Third, I want to do good, but I can't. And fourthly, I'm a wretched person incapable of saving my life. Paul here, he says, I'm a wretched man. And I realize this is a church term. So if you don't understand and don't know what the meaning of wretched means, it's, it's like miserable. I'm a miserable man. Paul, of all people, I would even say that we probably, from the pulpit, from teaching, probably say Paul's name more so than Jesus' name because he wrote so many of the New Testament letters that we look at. Paul is a hero of the faith. He's one that we almost put on a pedestal, almost making him Christ-like, but he's not. And Paul is saying, I'm a wretched man. <clears throat> he could have said I'm the Pharisee of Pharisees. I kept all the law as much as possible. I was born of the tribe of Benjamin. If anyone can wear medals around his chest, it's me. He could have said that. He could have said, I'm the best church planner this world has ever seen. Have you, have you ever seen how many churches I've planted across Asia Minor? It's like probably in the 50s to hundreds. I've planted so many churches. He could have said anything. He could have bragged about himself. He could have boasted himself. He could have said, I have done my best. I have tried to be Christ-like as much as possible. I have imitated Christ as much as I possibly can. Could have boasted, but he didn't. He self-identified as saying, I'm a wretched man because he understood where he stood before the king of the universe. He understood that he was a sinful man. You can take these tests. You can take the Enneagram, the disc, the Myers-Briggs, and they're gonna tell you your strengths and weaknesses. They're gonna tell you your shortcomings. They might even point to the fact that you have sin in your life, but they're never gonna point to the Savior to fix your sin. They're never gonna do it. If anything, they're gonna make you feel, well, it's okay that I have these shortcomings because that's how I am. That's my disposition. That's how God wired me today to be. Instead of saying, no, you have a personality, you are unique, but you need to redeem that to be Christ-like. Paul realized that he was a wretched man. But Paul doesn't just give us the problem here. He gives us the solution. And he says this, that the solution is found in Jesus. Verse 25, when he's, he's looking at this and he says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of death? And he said, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. And then he continues, he says, there, therefore there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus says the sin, the problem with myself, I can't fix it, but Jesus can. And I know him, and I'm gonna point you to him. You see, I opened up a, this, the message with a quote by Kenneth Boa, but I actually cheated. You only gave half of it. I gave you this part. It says, if you had no inclination to sin, you would simply obey the law of God and find life. But because of our sin, the law brings death, not life. And then he continues to say this, and this is what I didn't tell you. Therefore, the good news of the gospel is that we have been delivered from the condemnation of the law by dying to the propensity that once controlled us. That one thing that controlled us, sin, the flesh, Jesus got rid of it. 
He died for it. He says, I've come to give you life and I'm imparting you and I'm giving you my spirit who has all authority of heaven and earth and I'm giving you him because it's he who lives in you now, not just yourself. We are mind, body, and spirit. And then I'm gonna read the rest of chapter eight is actually the whole answer. I'm gonna read just a small bit of it for you. Chapter eight, verses one through four is what I'm gonna read. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of the sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law because it had to be perfect and good and holy and we are not, but Jesus is. The righteousness requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So the answer is not found in you. The answer is not found in just become a better person, stop sinning. Stop doing what you don't want to do and start doing what you do want to do. Now there's this tension that we wrestle with. And Paul says, quit feeding your flesh, feed your spirit. Be sensitive to the spirit. Let the spirit's prompting lead you, guide you, direct you. Obey it, don't suppress or grieve the Spirit's work in your life. Jesus, we thank you for the opportunity, um, Lord, to be called your sons and daughters, that you would redeem us, that you would uh, see that we are not good, that we fall so short of your glory, but that you sent your Son to die on the cross to redeem us so that we can have everlasting life with you on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, I pray that uh, us in this room that have a relationship with you, Lord, I think there's people in this room that are, uh, that are feeling that tension of, I don't do what I want to do, and I do the very thing I hate. And Lord, I believe that what your word is saying, what your spirit is saying, is that we need to stop feeding our flesh and start allowing your spirit to do a work in us. So Father, would you set some captives free this morning? Would you release some people from the weight of the sin, the weight of the chains that are holding them down? the weight of past mistakes, of regrets. Lord, receiving that contentment because they know that they are made in your image, the image of God and that you love them. Lord, would you set these people free? Lord, this tension that's within us, that the sin, Lord, you've come to to relinquish it, to set us free from it. Lord, may we not continue in sin so that grace may ever abound, but we are thankful that your grace abounds further than our sin. Lord, I pray that if there's someone in this room and people in this room that don't have a personal relationship with Jesus, they may think that they do or that they come to church and they're religious. Lord, I pray that your spirit would remove their heart of stone and replace it with the heart of flesh, that you'd give them a new life, a new name, a new identity, a new person in Jesus Christ. Lord, that you would regenerate them, that you would give them a rebirth, Lord, as your your word says. Spirit, you want to do that. Would we obey you? Would we just say yes? We don't have to know all the answers. We don't have to know all the steps. We just have to know that we're saying yes to your spirit and no to our flesh. Lord, we so want to obey you. Lord, we have this tension and our our sin, our flesh oftentimes has conquered us over us, but you desire to set that free. Lord, we thank you. And as we get ready to sing and to praise and worship you, spirit, do a work as we do so. May we sing promises and declarations with our mouths, maybe that of which we have not 
grasp or came a hold to, but yet that we're wishing and longing for. To have that relationship that's ever life-giving with you. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, thank you for listening to Awareness Revealed today. Feel free to leave us a rating and review on whatever platform that you choose to listen to podcasts on if this message made an impact in your life. Please make sure that you hit that subscribe button on any and every platform that you listen to your podcast on to make sure that you receive every message from Ethan Callison. Once again, thank you for listening, and we hope to see you soon at Fellowship Community Church.